Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us uh, to come together this morning and to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us to understand it, help us to see what you would require and what you do require from us as your children and as those who have been called out of darkness into light, those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, help us to see what you require of us uh, as a result of what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for Christ, and especially we're reminded this morning on Reformation Day, we're reminded of your word, uh, this word that so many have given their, their lives to, so many have given their lives to preserve for us, especially uh, us in English. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for their labor, and we pray that we would be numbered among them as faithful and that we would not take your word for granted. So help us, Lord, this morning to uh, not just think about theological concepts or uh, to just be here to fill our minds with knowledge, but to know your word and be quick to do it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is good to see you, and happy Reformation Day to you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, We're picking up with a series we began uh, a while back on the Christian and discipleship. Now, the title of this series is called The Christian and Discipleship. And the main objective here is that we want CBC, Central, or this is really funny. So I graduated from Central Baptist College, CBC. So for five years, yes, it took me five years to get my bachelor's degree. Don't judge me for that. Um, For five years, CBC was Central Baptist College. And now CBC is Calvary Bible Church. So when I see CBC on paper, I I default to Central Baptist College. You're not at Central Baptist College. If you think you are, uh, we're here to help you. (laughs) Um, Discipleship is happening at Calvary Bible Church. It's happening. I see it all the time. You see it all the time. We are a place where discipling and discipleship is really part of the DNA of our church. But what we want to do here this morning and what we wanted to do seven weeks ago when we started this little series uh, was to exhort you really kind of in the way that Paul exhorted the Thessalonians. They were doing a great job, but he challenged them to excel still more. And that's, that's what the objective here is, just to really stir you a bit and get you thinking about God's call on your life to be making disciples. Right? That's, that's God's will for you. And I can say that with certainty. If you're a Christian, I can tell you with definitiveness that God's will for you is that you be making disciples. Right? So I can tell you definitively, God's will for you is that you be making disciples. So you have to, I can't tell you in one sense if that's happening in your life or not. Are you being faithful to that call? And that's something that each one of you have to wrestle with on your own. We'd be happy to help you think about that. But you're called as a Christian to be making disciples. And so seven weeks ago, almost two months Ago, uh, I started this series, 
And this is definitely not an ideal scenario where you have eight weeks between each lesson, seven weeks between each lesson. But this is where we are. And Rod told me this morning, um, I, I told him I've got a lot of stuff to cover this morning and I'm not sure how I'm going to do all of it. And he said, well, you know, if, you, if you're not able to get it all, uh, we'll give you another shot at it on December the 19th. <laughs> so this is great. We'll have, you know, this series will just stretch out over the course of five months. Uh, but at any rate, I told him I would finish this morning. So here we are. That's my objective. But I want to take some time to revisit uh, the text that we were in the last time we met. Because that is the foundation for discipleship. And in that passage, what I, I wanted to do was to convince you that God's will for your life is to be making disciples. And I want to finish looking at that. And then what we'll do is we'll unpack the first, uh, we'll look at the first part of Matthew 28 that we looked at uh, when we met last, which was the claim, uh, the clear command in your outline. And then we're going to look at the promised comfort, which we didn't get to last time we were together. And then we'll look at, we'll sort of transition into lesson number two, which is the practice of discipling. And get really practical about uh, what it looks like to be making disciples. So I want that to be tangible and helpful. So I invite you then to turn to Matthew 28, and we'll read our passage. I'm going to read, start reading in verse 16. You'll remember the context here. Obviously, Jesus has risen from the dead. And we come to verse 16, and the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what we began to see last time <clears throat> we looked at this passage together was that Jesus essentially is giving them, uh, I mean, he's giving them this command, but the text itself sort of lays out in three um, distinguished parts. The first part is that Jesus gives them a clarifying command, or he makes a clarifying claim, sorry. The first part is that Jesus makes a clarifying claim, and he follows that claim with giving his disciples a clear command, and then he gives them a promised comfort. And you see that in your outline. And so we were able to make it through the first two points last time. Uh, but I want us to spend some time reviewing that and then getting into the third point and then move on to those practical aspects of discipleship. So again, my goal in this first part is to convince you that God's will for your life as a Christian is that you be making disciples. All right, that's, that's my objective here. And I think that's what this text will do for you. So first, let's look at the clarifying claim of Matthew 28. Uh, verse 18, a clarifying claim. Verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that's an extraordinary statement. Someone tell me why. <laughs> why is that so extraordinary? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, if you remember seven weeks ago, 
which I'd be surprised if you didn't. Um, seven weeks ago, I told you the answer, why it was such an extraordinary claim. So who remembers from seven weeks ago? Yeah. That's exactly right. From Daniel 7. Yeah, he was, he's, he's, it's interesting because he says all authority has been given to me and it's passive. And so what you have, it's a reference to this messianic text in Daniel 7. And Jesus is essentially saying, I am that, right? The Son of Man uh, has now received from the Ancient of Days all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's me. It's striking. Right? So that's why I'm calling it a claim. Right? Jesus is not just saying, okay, we're here since we're here. Let me tell you that I have all authority. No, in that statement is a claim to divinity, to the messiahship, uh, to lordship and sovereignty. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's also striking because Jesus has just died, right? Um, I mean, he's just been resurrected, but a few days before that, he had been handed over to people who seemed, at least, to be more powerful, um, have more authority, more sovereignty than he did, right? He was handed over to Jewish religious leadership, to Roman governmental authorities, and they took his life. We know he laid his life down, but by all appearances, they took it from him. Well, one of the things that we all have is a will to live, right? So if your will is stronger than someone else's will that's trying to take your life from you, you can exercise that will to live and preserve your life. So here Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And it looks as if that can't be true. But if it were not for the resurrection, now something has changed, right? Jesus has, it looked as if Jesus was stripped of all his authority, all his power, and he was crucified. But now on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I know that it looked as if I was out of control. But I want you to know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the Messiah. I am the Sovereign. I am the Lord of all. Now, naturally, Jesus' disciples were struck when they saw Jesus uh, in this area in Galilee. Now, they were struck because they had already seen Jesus die. Right? It's, just imagine if you saw someone die and you knew they were dead. And then you saw them the next day at a coffee shop. Right? That would be striking. Uh, well, this is really personal. And these are, are men who have been with Jesus. And they saw him die. They were devastated by it. All their hopes were on this man. And now here he is, crucified, stripped of all glory and dignity. And we saw him die, and we saw him buried. And then all of a sudden, here he is before us. And it's striking, it's shocking, and certainly would have left the disciples in a sort of confused state. What is going on here? So in verse 17, though, we see that there were essentially two responses of the disciples when they saw Jesus. Right? What, what were those two responses according to verse 17? Yeah, some worshipped and some doubted. They, they had 
unanswered questions, right? Those who doubted, they weren't sure of what was happening before them. Were they seeing some sort of aberration or what is happening with, with my eyes? And so in verse 18, Jesus sort of gets rid of all that fog by saying, I am, I am the Messiah. I am the man you were with three days ago. It's me. I am him. And all authority has been given to me. So first, you see this is, this is a clarifying claim because it identifies Jesus' person, who he is, with clarity. That he's the Lord of all, that he's the, he's the king, the sovereign, that his dominion will be everlasting. That's from Daniel 7. It, it clarified who Jesus was, but it also clarified what the disciples were to do. Right? If this is now the king, and it's crystal clear for them that Jesus is the Lord and king, now the disciples are his representatives and ambassadors on the earth. Right? They were to be his official, official representatives on the planet. And we talked about this before, that an ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a state as its permanent representative in a foreign country. Right? Jesus is risen from the dead. He will soon ascend into heaven. But he's going to leave on the earth his disciples, right? who will function not merely as his students, but as his ambassadors on the earth. Right? So there's a regalness to their, their responsibility now. They have, as part of their job description now as Christians and as disciples, the responsibility of an ambassador. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, this role of being an ambassador for Jesus, the king on earth, comes down to every disciple, every person who will follow Jesus. Right, so, if you are a Christian, you are an ambassador for him. Right, you're an ambassador for Jesus. If you have confessed Christ and you're following Christ, you are called to make disciples as we'll see, but you are also called to be a representative of the king on the earth. So when people see you, they get an idea of what the king is like. They get an idea of what the king prefers. What are the king's convictions? Uh, what is the king's message? What, is he, what does he have to say to sinners? Right, that's, when people look at you, that's what they're to be seeing. That's the call of every follower of Christ. So it's a good searching heart question, right? Is that, is that what my life is like? Am I representing Jesus uh, accurately on this earth? I can give you the answer to that too. The answer is no, you're not. <laughs> and I know that because uh, you have not arrived and neither have I. Right? We're all weak, so none of us have, are perfect ambassadors for the king. But the idea is that we want to be imperfectly striving to represent him on the earth. That's every one of our calls as Christians. So, if that is true, 
that as a Christian, you're to live every one of your days, every waking hour, as an ambassador of the king. And the question, the natural question is, what does the king require of his ambassadors? Right? Certainly we represent him, but what are we to be doing? Right? What are we to be doing with our lives? Well, the answer to that is in verses 19 to 20. Verse 19, this is the specific command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. All right? you're, my, you're my ambassadors. I'm the king. You're my ambassadors on the earth. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is your job description as an ambassador of the king. You are to make disciples of all nations. And that's the, that's the main thrust of the whole Great Commission. Make disciples. That's your uh, fundamental uh, responsibility on this planet. Do you know that? Are you living as if that's true? That of all the things God has called you to do in your life, certainly there's a whole repertoire, a whole whatever you would want to call it, list, long list of things that you think God has called you to do. But if making disciples is not on that list, not only is it not on the list, but if it's not at the top of the list, then you are not walking faithfully for the king. Because he's, he's saying very clear, I mean, you're going to have to do some serious hermeneutical gymnastics to get around that statement. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Right? That's what he's called you to do. So what is a disciple? A disciple is essentially a student, a student, in this case, a student who follows Jesus. The noun, disciple, means a follower or a disciple of someone in the sense of adhering to the teachings or instructions of a leader and in promoting the cause of such a leader. And to put it in a word, it just means to follow. It's to follow Jesus. The verb, and and that's the verb form here that we see, make disciples. Uh, you You could probably come up with a word like disciplize for this. Uh, you're to be discipleizing people, right? You're to be making disciples. It means to cause them, cause them to be a disciple or follower of Christ. Now, that probably strikes against our theological convictions a little bit, right? We can't cause anyone to be uh, a follower of Jesus, right? We wish we could. You could think of a long list of people that you wish you could just zap and make them Christians, right? Um, I can. But the idea here is that it takes effort and energy, right? Certainly you can't save anyone, you can't change anyone's heart. You all know that, I know that. But the idea here is it should be a little bit provocative. You are to make them a disciple. You are to make them a follower of Jesus. The implication is they're not just going to stumble into it, right? Uh, They're not just going to happen to be godly. Any more than you just happen to be walking in holiness. If you're striving to live a godly life, you know the 
pain, the blood, sweat, tears, holy blood, holy sweat, holy tears that come with walking in holiness. You know that. You know how hard it is to love as Christ loves, right? It's not easy. It takes work. This is why perseverance is so key to the Christian life, right? If you think it's going to be easy, it's just God's going to just sort of zap you and all your problems will go away and your marriage will be blissful and you know, you're just kind of skipping through life. Um, you are not going to have the sort of endurance that you need to make it through this thing. Right? You have to go in knowing that what God requires of us is not easy. It's, it's difficult. It takes effort and energy and none of us just stumble into it. It takes precision and strategizing and care and discipline. All the things that we sort of don't like to think about. (laughs) Some of us love thinking about that, but most of us maybe, we don't really think about that. So make a disciple. It takes effort, energy. All right, we're going to come back to that in a couple of minutes, uh, but we have to move on. So that's the command. Make a disciple. Make disciples. The focus here is go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now we dealt with this in detail before. So that audio from seven weeks ago uh, is on the uh, website, it's on the app. So if you're interested in, in hearing more of, like exegesis, like unpacking of this passage, all that's on the audio before. So go read that. Right now I'm just dealing with some of the application as we sort of skip a stone over this passage without going into much depth. But the, uh, the focus here, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, is really simple. Right? It's outward focus. It's an outward focus. Jesus is calling his disciples to turn themselves outside of their comfortable circle, which was ethnic Judaism. At this point in history, Judaism um, was essentially ethnocentric, right? Just focused only on themselves. And Jesus says, listen, I have all authority in heaven and on earth now. It's mine. You... Uh, are my disciples and earthly representatives and ambassadors. So here's your instruction. Go make disciples. And they're thinking, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. We've got you know, my cousin, my best friend, my, all these people in my Jewish circle. Right? We can take care of that. It's no problem. Um, and he says, I want you to do it of all nations. And they bristle. <laughs> uh, of, all, of all what? Where, what, what are, where are you sending us? What are you calling us to do here? Of all nations. So the fundamental sort of application point here for us is that this is outward. Right? This gets us sort of off of our, our eyes, off of ourselves, onto people around us. Those you know, strange people that are sitting next to you. Um, this is, sorry, that's not a comment on your strangeness. Uh, but we all think we're the norm, right? That's what I mean by that. We sort of think we're the norm and everyone around us is a little different. And that's true. We're all a little different. Uh, how strange were the Gentiles to these Jewish people who were following the Lord Jesus? Pretty strange. <laughs> they did everything weird. Well, the focus is on others. It's, it's outward, off of yourself. It's not merely about physically going, as if the only way to fulfill the Great Commission is to go overseas, or even to go, really, I would argue, even to go across the street. Certainly that's part of it, but you, you fulfill the Great Commission, as we'll see in this practical section of the lesson, in your home, 
right? You, you fulfill that without even leaving your four walls. You fulfill it or you fail in it in that area. So the idea is, is, is on outwardness, going to others, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Certainly missions, uh, but certainly home, certainly friends, certainly family. But the principle is outward-oriented, outward-oriented. And the focus of Christ's ambassadors then must be on others. So what are the disciples to do as they look outward then? Right? We're getting our eyes off ourselves. We're looking outward. What are we to do? Well, certainly they're to proclaim the gospel to them, to the Gentiles. But it's specifically in our text, they are to make disciples, discipleize these Gentiles, the nations. That's what they're to do. And you have to think, when they heard this, they were thinking, there is no way. <laughs> There's no way. No way these Gentiles are going to come. No way they're going to repent. No way they're going to follow you, Jesus. Look, the Jews just crucified you. Right? The Jews aren't even following you at this point. How are we going to get these people to do it? Well, Jesus tells them. First, he gives them the, the means of discipleship. This is how we make disciples. The first one is baptizing. You see that in the text. Uh, whatever verse that is. Uh, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, to put it briefly, essentially, the only people who are baptized in the New Testament are people who exercise faith. All right? So, I know that's controversial, but that's, that's the way that it is. Um, people believe the gospel and they're baptized, right? That's Acts 2, 38-39. Um, the prerequisites for being baptized, according to Acts 2, 38 and 39, are that these people were pierced to the heart after they heard, Jesus's, after they heard Peter's teaching. They repented, right? And they come to Peter and say, what should we do? And Peter tells them to be baptized, right? And then, verse 39, he says this, For the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off. And this is the key. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It's not a call to go baptize your children or baptize your friends or baptize whoever. All right, we're celebrating the Reformation today. Right? This is a huge debate, obviously, still is today. Um, but the Baptists, at one point in Reformation history, the Anabaptists sort of won the day. And uh, they said, yeah, baptism is for believers by immersion. So let's go into the city and force all these people to believe, and then we'll immerse all of them and make them Christians. <laughs> right? And so the, the Pado-Baptists were doing that before, and then the, you know, the, the Credo-Baptists said, well, we'll do the same thing. And so both of those are wrong, right? Because the, the fundamental requirement to be baptized is to believe the gospel and repent. So in one sense then, back to the point here, to baptize as a means of making disciples requires evangelizing first. Right? You have to, the prerequisite for baptism is evangelizing. So we could say, how do you make disciples? Well, one aspect of that is evangelism. And we did a class on that over the summer, evangelism. If you're interested in, in learning more about evangelism, we have an evangelism team that goes out on Fridays. Um, you, you could be a part of that. If you're interested in that, you could talk to me or one of the elders. But at any rate, evangelism is a key means for making disciples. 
We have to evangelize. We have to baptize then true converts. All right, so that's, that's what it looks like to make disciples, at least in one sense. But then in verse 20, he gives another aspect or another means of making disciples, and that is this, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And this is what we typically think of when we think about discipleship. Teaching someone to observe all that Christ has commanded. Teach them to observe. This is what, as my ambassadors on the planet, here's what I want you to do. Go preach the gospel to these Gentiles. They're going to believe. Trust me, they're going to believe. They're going to believe. And then your responsibility is to help them, teach them, observe and do all that I'm commanding you to do. Do you see that? I mean, it's, it's perfectly logical. The word here literally means, as far as the word keep or observe, it means to keep watch over or guard. Keep them the, keep, teach them to keep watch over or guard themselves. To do all that I have commanded you to do. The idea here is that you want to teach these young disciples how to persist in obeying Christ's commands. Isn't that the challenge at every stage? Persistence. How to persist in obeying Christ's commands. And this obedience that Jesus requires encompasses every sphere of life. Every sphere of life. And notice also that this is not simply knowing what Jesus has taught. It's not, he's not saying teach them to know what I've done for them. Interesting. He doesn't say that. Teach them to enjoy the gospel. Teach them to believe and enjoy justification by faith. That's not what he says. Certainly those things are important. He says, teach them to observe what I am commanding you. Teach them to do it. Our problem is often we, we fill our minds with theological truths. And, and we think that can lead to arrogance. Knowledge can puff up. Um, and we think, we deceive ourselves by thinking, because I know the answers in my mind, I am pleasing to God. Uh, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing, the joy, the happiness doesn't come, and faithfulness in that sense doesn't come until you're actually doing that which you know. And so in one sense, the more you know, the more culpable, responsible you are for God, before God, for how you're living. And I'm not trying to just get you to feel feel bad about yourself. I'm going to say some positive things in a little while, so don't, don't give up. Persist. Persist. Persevere with me here. John Piper gives a helpful quote in his book from what Jesus, or it's called What Jesus Demands from the World. He says this, Jesus did not say, teach them all my commandments. He said, teach them to observe all my commandments. Uh, You can teach a parrot all of Jesus' commandments, but you cannot teach a parrot to observe Jesus' commands Parrots will not repent and worship, or lay, and worship Jesus or lay up treasures in heaven or love their enemies or 
go out like sheep in the midst of wolves to herald the kingdom of God. Teaching people to parrot all that Jesus commanded is easy. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded is impossible. That is impossible apart from divine assistance. We don't want to be parrots. We don't want to teach people to be parrots either. Discipleship is about doing what Jesus has commanded us. That's what discipleship is about. All right, moving along. So we've seen the claim, clarifying claim. Jesus is the king, essentially. The command, make disciples, which, which means evangelize, baptize, teach people to obey Christ's command. And then we come to the last part of verse 20. We come to the promised comfort. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. <clears throat> and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The promise here is that Jesus will be with his disciples as they carry out this seemingly impossible command to make disciples of the Gentiles and of the Jews at that point. I mean, he's, <laughs> this, is a, this is a Herculean task without the Lord's help. And just think about that task for a minute. So Jesus has just been crucified by the Jewish religious leaders. The, the uh, Gentile governments and powers are also against Jesus and his disciples. What had Peter done uh, when he felt a little bit of pressure uh, regarding his identity with Jesus during the crucifixion? He denied him because he was afraid. What are, if they're doing this to the king, what are they going to do to me? So the task before these men was no simple, uh, safe, easy task. In fact, Jesus said that it would cost them everything, right? It would cost them everything. If they follow through with his command, it's going to cost big. And we know that it actually did, right? It, it cost them their lives. We read that in these traditional stories about how the apostles ended their lives, right? Uh, apparently, uh, the tradition is that Peter was crucified. Um, John was boiled alive, but he survived it. Um, the other apostles were equally tortured and crucified. I, I'm reading a little book right now. If you haven't read it, it's, it's really interesting. It's called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. It's a brief history of the Reformation. It's really easy read. It's fast. It's, it's enjoyable. But he details some of the torturings that God's people have endured uh, for standing on biblical truth. It's amazing what's happened. And these sort of things happen to the apostles, happens to Christians who decide to follow the Lord throughout history. But the point here is that making disciples of the nations is costly. How do we persist in obedience when everyone around us is against us? Well, Jesus gives us a comfort. Know that even as you're going out there and you're being opposed by your family, friends, while you're being opposed, know that I am with you. I am with you. So think about that. The next time, I mean, we're coming up on the holidays, right? Thanksgiving is coming. Christmas is coming. I know that you all have that family member that you're thinking about. That you want to share the gospel with us, go around. Um, again, maybe, and you're, you're feeling the maybe Peter syndrome. 
It's like, uh, I just don't want to be identified with it. I'll just be quiet and keep my hands warm by the fire. Uh, well, just know what Jesus is calling you to do is not just be quiet. Right? Maybe he is in some scenario, right? Um, but he's calling you to be his ambassador, right? At your Thanksgiving dinner, you're to be an ambassador. And you're to represent him. And it's scary. It is scary. I'm there with you. <laughs> um, but Jesus says, hey, while you're doing this, just know I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm here with you. You're not alone. You may feel alone, but I'm with you. The, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, and the one who preserves your life and preserves the life of your, your family member or friend, that's the one who's with you as you're sharing the truth with him. It's amazing. John Calvin said this, Never, certainly, would the apostles have had sufficient confidence to undertake so arduous an office, and the office of apostleship. I mean, it's, all of these guys endured immense pain and suffering. Never, certainly, would the apostles have had sufficient evidence or confidence to undertake so arduous an office if they had not known that their protector sitteth in heaven and that the highest authority is given to him. For without such a support, it would have been impossible for them to make any progress. But when they learned that he to whom they owed their services was the governor of heaven and earth, this alone was abundantly sufficient for preparing them to rise superior to all opposition. I think of Paul in prison, and he calls himself, do you remember he calls himself a, a what in chains? Do you remember? And an ambassador in chains. I'm a representative of the king in chains. My king has more power and authority than you. Sure, certainly. You can chain me up, put me in this prison. Sure, whatever you want to do, if you feel like this is what you need to do, and this gives you whatever, you know, you think you're powerful. Sure, go ahead. Just know that my king is the one who's in heaven and is permitting you to do this right now. You know, this, the confidence that Paul had to endure whatever suffering God brought his way was rooted in this reality that Jesus was the king. And no one was able to do anything to him without it being filtered through the Father's hands, the king's permission. Right? It all came with the king's sovereign awareness. He knows what's happening. And so that promise, the promise comfort, gave the disciples, the apostles, courage. Courage to carry out the task that God was calling them to. Now, notice that the end of verse 20, it says, even to the end of the age. That's interesting that Jesus gives a time stamp on it. Even to the end of the age. And the word age here refers to a unit of history or a segment of time. And here, Jesus is referring to the unit of time between his first coming and his final return to judge the world and establish his earthly kingdom. So between my coming and between my return to establish my kingdom, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you the whole time. When he returns, he'll be with us in a different way. But until then, he's with us. He's with his disciples. And the relevance really 
of, of that statement for us is that we actually inhabit a very unique season in redemptive history. We don't think about that often. But when Jesus came, uh, he came primarily as the Savior of the Jews, right? I mean, Jesus, and that's Matthew 10, right? It's amazing. Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't you go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? I'm narrowing down my focus to the Jews here. But something happens between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. Now, that's a theological discussion that we're not going to unpack here. But something does happen, and there's some sort of shift. Certainly, this is according to God's eternal decree and plan. But in the unfolding of God's plan, the, the, the plan of redemption is now off of Jews who have been hardened, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, that the Jews have been temporarily hardened. Right? This is why we don't see a lot of Jews coming to know Christ. But we see a lot of Gentiles. And Paul says that this hardening has to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Makes perfect sense. Here we are, here you are, uh, and myself, as Gentiles. We're gleanings of the harvest of the Gentiles. Right? God is specifically working now in His redemptive plan to bring in Gentiles. Certainly Jews are being saved too. Right? But the majority are Gentiles. It's a unique season where God has equipped us to reach the nations with the gospel. Right? This is to be our occupation. We're to be focused in this age in reaching the nations for Christ and reaching our homes for Christ. And specifically, as his ambassadors, discipling the nations, discipling our homes, discipling our friends, co-workers. Our job is to participate in this large harvest of the nations. When we say Gentiles, that's just another way to say nations. That's our work right now. We are participating in this. Regardless of what it might cost us, we are called to serve. So, let me conclude this. So what is God's will for your life? Answer. To make disciples. That's His will for you. Certainly there are other things, but I can tell you that for certain. You are to make disciples. Jesus is the sovereign king. You are his ambassador. And he has clearly called you to make disciples on earth while you're here. All right, that's certain. And he promises to be with you until the very end. I often think of this. What would you do if Jesus just appeared to you, Lincoln? This is not going to happen, all right? Um, If Jesus just appeared to you, all right, Lincoln's, this is just a hypothetical. Lincoln's struggling with, he's trying to share the gospel with someone on TCU's campus. Uh, he's been wrestling with it. He knows he needs to do it. He knows he needs to evangelize, see this guy baptized, um, and then disciple him. But he's fearful. If Jesus appeared to you and said, Lincoln, here's what I want you to do. And I'm not talking to anyone else. I'm talking to you. I want you to go to John, and I want you to evang- share what I've done for sinners with him. And then I want you to take him to Calvary Bible Church and be baptized. And then I want you to be the person to disciple him. That's what I'm calling you to do. All right, what, and I'm going to be with you as you do it. I mean, what kind of 
energy would you have in carrying out that task? I mean, it would be powerful, right? Well, if you want that experience, brother, all we have to do is read this out loud, right? And it's as if Jesus is speaking to you saying, go make disciples. Go disciple John. This is what we have. He's giving us this book, his word, and he's saying, go do it. And I'm with you. Be strong and courageous. All right? So Lincoln, just do it, man. Go do it. <laughs> so that's what we do. That's, that's what we're called to do. Now here's a very practical question. How? How do we make disciples? How do we do it? So that brings us to the practice of discipleship, and we have 12 minutes. So listen fast. If I, if I had to define discipleship in a word, a uh, sentence, and, and I do because I'm teaching on it, this is what I would say. According to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, discipleship is helping someone do what Christ has commanded. Helping someone do what Christ has commanded. In a word, I think that is what Jesus is calling you to do as a Christian. Every Christian, no matter who you are, where you are, what your preferences are, you are called to actively spend your life helping others do what Christ has commanded them to do. That's what you're to do. Now, I'm still, I still haven't answered how we do that. <laughs> so how do we do that? Well, according to Matthew 8, uh, 28, to 20, 28, verse 20, we, we've, we've talked about evangelizing, baptizing, and teaching. And we're going to narrow in on teaching, all right? Because that's fundamentally what we think about when we think about discipleship. How do we help others do what Christ has commanded? Well, the answer, actually, is that we teach them. We instruct them. This is what Jesus said to do. Instruct them. Instruct them to observe what Christ has commanded the word instruct is from the word where we get our word teach or uh, didactic. And it has two senses. Uh, the one sense is simply to tell someone what to do. And we actually see that usage in uh, chapter 28, verses 11 to 15, where the guards came into the city in verse 11, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And the chief priests tell the guards exactly what they're to do. You're to say, verse 13, you're to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And then look at verse 15. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. They did just what they were told. That's the same word. Uh, it's a different um, tense grammatically, but it's the same idea. They just did what they were told. This is what you're to do. Go do this, this, and this. And they said, okay. And they went and did it. That's instructing. So you now have full permission just to tell everyone what to do. <laughs> That's a joke. It's to, to instruct. or In some senses, it is to tell people what to do. On, on Christ's authority, you can do that. Uh, I can think of plenty of examples where you can say, don't do that. <laughs> uh, that is sin. Stop. You can think of marriage relationships. The husband is having a conversation with another woman who's not his wife. Don't do that. Stop that. 
That's instructing. Of course, you would say more, but that's, that's the gist of it. Provide instruction here is the idea. Provide instruction. And the word is used formally and informally. There's formal instruction and there's informal instruction. First, let's look at formal instruction. We call this formal discipleship, right? It's formal discipleship or formal help, right? Help. You're helping them to do what Christ has commanded. How are we helping them to do what Christ has commanded? We're instructing them. We're instructing them. We're formally helping someone to obey what Christ has commanded in a more structured manner. This is formal discipleship. You have set times and meeting places. You have a topic you're working through. Uh, This looks like, uh, I'll give you some examples of what that could look like in just a minute. But one of the prominent forms of formal discipleship, uh, at least at our church, is biblical counseling. You hear us talk about biblical counseling a lot. Biblical counseling is just intensive discipleship. That's all it is. It's, it's where you focus on one sin struggle or trial in someone's life. Right? They're at a gridlock in their marriage or something's happening. And they're enslaved to some sin. There's this one thing. And biblical counseling is simply laser focused on this one sin or suffering and trying to help this person obey what Christ has commanded in this area. It's really that simple. That's what we're doing. We're, we're just saying, here's a sin and this is what Christ has said about it. And God is calling you to, to not do that sin anymore, but to do this thing. And I'm going to keep you accountable and work with you to help you see what Jesus has commanded you so that you can do it. Right? That's intensive discipleship. Now, this is, is especially important for, wow, it's 9.54. Um, okay, we have to move on. Uh, the goal of biblical counseling, as far as I see it, I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders and everyone else here, this is just my way of seeing it, is to help, and I think this is biblical, and so I think we would all agree, uh, is to help the disciple of Jesus to obey Christ in a specific area of life. Right? That's biblical counseling. Well, then we have, that's formal counseling, and then underneath that, biblical counseling. And then you have another, what we could call general discipleship, underneath formal counseling, formal instructing. And that looks like, in just a more general format, where you still have a specific time, you meet with someone every week, you're reading a book, you're reading a part of uh, Scripture together, and you're helping this person focus on the fundamentals of the Christian life. You're just helping them to obey Christ as a Christian. You know, in every sphere of life, every, you know, new, definitely new believers, uh, they need to be trained in the spiritual disciplines, you know, Bible study, prayer, these sort of things. So that's formal discipleship. It's general. It's just generally focused on, on the topics of the Christian life. So let me just ask you guys, what, this can have a, a myriad of different forms, right? Where you have a formal meeting where you meet regularly. But what might this type of discipleship look like in real life? This kind of we're generally meeting together to help one another obey Christ. What, what are some ways it could look like in, in real life? At a coffee shop. Doing, drinking coffee, talking about the Lord. <laughs> talking about the Lord. Yeah, so if you're at a coffee, just being at a coffee shop with someone is not necessarily discipleship. But if you're a Christian, it's inevitable that you're going to be encouraging them, loving them, helping them. 
Uh, you could meet weekly, and if it's formal, you would meet weekly at a coffee shop, keep them accountable with their Bible reading. You're helping them to obey Christ in their life, right? Yes, that is definitely discipleship. Um, I would say that's more informal because you're not planning for it. You know, if, they, if that phone call is every week, um, then certainly that would be formal discipleship. Um, and that's an important dynamic and feature. You can do that sort of thing. Um, and the informal discipleship, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's a routine thing that you're, this is what we do. Um, those are formal ways of helping people. Now, I have a stack of books here um, that I just want to show you, all right? This is Discipling by Mark Dever. Really helpful book, uh, simple book, but it just helps you think about some discipleship themes. If you're thinking about formal discipleship with people, you could pick a book of the Bible. Just take the Gospel of Mark and say, hey, why don't we read, we, we'll meet together. It doesn't require anything from you outside of our one-hour meeting together every week. And we'll sit down, and we'll read Mark chapter 1, and then we'll talk about it together. So it's no burden on anyone else. It's just you two getting together and reading the Bible together. If you're interested in that, and you want some structure for that, this little book by David Helm, One to One, is excellent. He's got some helpful thoughts, helpful things just to kind of get you thinking creatively about what that could look like. This book, Sinclair Ferguson, The Christian Life. Find a young Christian. Uh, find a new Christian, maybe who has, doesn't have good theology. What he does here is he looks at every... Uh, the, the key aspects of theology proper and works through them and applies them to the Christian life. It's excellent. It would be a great thing to do. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Don Whitney. This is, it's as easy as pick a chapter, meet together once a week at a coffee shop, and, and, work, and talk through it. Keep one another accountable. This book, The Pursuit of Holiness, also great. Jerry Bridges, um, excellent book. Uh, the Trellis and the Vine, another one more like the Dever book on discipling, that'll be helpful. And then we have these two books that are more structured specifically for discipleship, and they're workbooks. Um, the Quest for Truth by Shannon Hurley. He's our brother that's in Uganda at SOS Ministries. This is something he's put together for them, and we have it here as well. And then we have Partners, which is a discipleship curriculum that you could work through with someone really structured. So if you think, oh, I just can't do that, I'm not there yet. If you can read and you can fill in the blank and you're a Christian uh, and you know something about Jesus, you can give them what you do know, right? Nobody's asking you to teach what you don't know. Uh, but what you do know about Jesus, you can easily pass on to someone else. So that gets me into informal discipleship. And this is what it looks like. Informal discipleship is exactly what Drew mentioned. It's a phone call with someone who's struggling. Uh, it's a conversation. We call this a personal ministry after church, right? It's ways that you are looking to help someone obey Christ in their life. They're discouraged, and you send them a Bible verse via text. What are you doing when you do that? You're, you're instructing them, right? I mean, of course, you don't want to position yourself, oh, I'm the sage teacher, and here you are down here. We're, we're all learning together. But what we're doing is, when, when someone's suffering, and we think, oh, Psalm 46 would be a really helpful verse for them, and you send it to them, what you're doing is, you're reminding them, probably of what they already know, but they may have forgotten. 
And so, in a sense, you're instructing them just by sending that verse to them. You're instructing them about who their God is, what He's like, how He ministers to the hurting people, how, how he, he, he is sovereign even in the chaos of life. You are instructing them. And so when Jesus says, instruct them or teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, that looks formal, certainly, but it's also very informal in, hey, how's your Bible reading this week? Um, how's your family doing? Uh, did you know that I prayed for you this week and I prayed this specific verse for you? Right? These are ways that we can serve. And these are ways that we can obey Jesus' command to make disciples. All right, there is obviously a lot more I could say about that, but let me just say this one thing. What is the hindrance to discipleship? Amen and amen. I want to get a little more specific than that. If I were to ask you, why are you not making disciples? Why are you not seeking to do people's spiritual good? Why are you not always looking for ways to help someone obey Christ in whatever area? Fear. Yeah, fear is a good one. You got another one? Sin. Amen, sister. Apathy. Right? Not making the time. We could formulate all those in a different way. I am afraid. I don't have time. Um, I have other things to do. I, 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 I. What is the focus of the Great Commission? Right. So what keeps you from being others-oriented is who? It's me. And why did Jesus come to die? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, verse 15 says this. And he died so that those who live, that's you and me, would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. The reason we're not discipling like we need to be is because we're living for ourselves. We're self-oriented. Now, certainly there are other reasons, all right? I'm, this is a general statement. But fundamentally... When you say, ah, I'm just not the person. They need someone more mature. They need someone more advanced. They, they need someone younger. They need someone older. They need someone this way, that way. Just stop. Just stop. And I have, I'm telling myself this too, okay? Uh, we just have to stop that and, and say, if I see the need that they're struggling to obey Christ in this area, and I, see a, I know a verse, I know something I can give them to help them obey Christ here uh, from a humble heart, a loving heart, that's my job. I've got to do it. It doesn't matter if they need someone else. They probably do, right? I say that all the time. I heard Dan say this recently. Uh, when someone's you know, coming to counsel them, sometimes he thinks, wow, they need a counselor. <laughs> we all think that, right? We think, oh, I need someone else needs to be doing this. But God has called us to do it. And God uses our weakness as the theater to demonstrate his grace and glory and power. So embrace that weakness and understand that we're all people who need to change, helping other people who need to change, and be faithful to obey what Jesus has commanded you. Because in the end, at the end of the day, what matters is this, what has God called me to do? Not what do I feel like doing, what do I want to do, but what has God called me to do? And clearly he has called us to make disciples. Father, thank you for your grace And thank you for the clarity of your word. And I pray, Lord, that it would be uh, challenging, stimulating to us to be increasingly more faithful. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.